If you have your Bible, you can take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's where we will be today. So I changed the turn there now myself. The first letter to the Corinthians is right after the letter to Romans. We're going to be starting at verse 10 this morning. And we are, we are past the introduction of the letter now. Uh, the Apostle Paul has given thanks to God for the saints in Corinth. Thanks to God for the grace that was given to them. Thanks to God for the understanding that was given to them. Thanks to God for the spiritual gifts and for, the gen- or for His general faithfulness and ability to persevere them. And then at verse 10 is where we see that the Apostle Paul starts to get into the many problems that, that this local congregation had. The very problems that plagued the saints in Corinth, the congregation there, are the same sinful issues that can plague our congregation. And they even are the same sins that absolutely infest many other churches today. I know of churches that have dealt with this exact problem that we're going to be covering today even. So this is much more than a historical account, though it is that, but it is a letter that deals with very real sin problems in our own day and in our own lives. And we must, by grace and faith, consider our own sin, our own potential to sin and be guilty of the very things that the apostle speaks of in the text, so that we, by grace, may be, and and by the mercy of Christ, may avoid the pain and the suffering that sin always brings. And it may be delayed, that pain and suffering, but make no mistake, friends, sin unchecked and unrepented for will always bring pain and suffering and even death. We must never deal lightly with sin or act as if it's not a big deal. Sin, our sin, the very sins that we even have yet to commit but will commit in the future resulted in the death of our Savior. It is your sin, it is my sin, which gave reason for Christ Jesus to suffer and die so that our sins might be forgiven so that we don't experience what is called the second death, that eternal death. Now we're starting at verse 10 this morning, but of course Pastor Nick preached on that text last week. And if you didn't listen to that sermon already, or even if you have listened to it already, I would compel you to give it another listen. It is an excellent handling of how it is that there is division in in churches and that we need to be of the same mind and the same judgment. So go ahead and give that another listen. But we're going to read it with our passage for this morning because it sets the, the context for the admonishments and the correction that the apostle is going to be making in the text for today. So whereas last week we considered division in general and were compelled to pursue unity in mind and judgment, this morning we're going to focus on a specific issue of division in the Corinthian congregation. And ultimately, this division that they have is a result of not being, of not being satisfied in Christ. It's a result of having a loss of focus on Christ and his work on the cross. And so I hope you can understand already then how it is that we might be guilty of these same sins. I mean, it's not as if we ever lose focus on Christ, right? We're capable of doing that as well, too. So let's let's read the passage and then we'll pray after uh, or before we study his word together. So the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 10 in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each, of, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none, no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be of, of Christ be emptied of its power. And that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding, and let's pray and ask him to do that now. Oh, gracious God, we thank you for your word, your holy word, your inspired word, your living word, and we ask that you would give to us understanding of it this morning. I pray that you would help me to rightly handle it, Lord, that you would cause us all to be discerning, and that you would make us to see our great need for you and all of the loveliness that is Christ. And it's in his perfect name that we pray. Amen. So, division has entered into the Corinthian church, and it didn't even take very long for that to happen. This is a new congregation. It is a baby congregation, if you will. That's how our sin works when it's not checked, and when there's no discipline and brotherly correction applied against it. The Apostle Paul had planted this church around 51 AD, and now he's writing to them about these issues only three years later, about three years later, because they're not agreeing, because they are not united in mind and judgment. Now, this matter of division might not be the main problem in, in Corinth, like we learned last week, but we dare not downplay it. After all, of all the sins that the Apostle Paul will speak about in this letter, and the list is long, uh, he gets into fornication, lawsuits, earthly wisdom, homosexuality, adultery, incest, pagan worship, conformity to the world, bad doctrine over the Lord's Supper and baptism, uh, drunkenness, modesty, lack of submission, lack of generosity. There is a, a laundry list of sins that will be covered in this letter. But this is what he chooses to address first. It's a division that commands Paul's attention right at the very beginning. This is number one on the list, number one on a list of dozens of sins. And I submit to you that it's for good reason that he right away gets to this matter, this matter of division. I'll give you two reasons as to why this is the case, why this is the first sin that he confronts here in this letter. The reason for that is because unity within the body is necessary for correcting sin and growing in grace. Unity within the body is necessary for correcting sin and growing in grace. You see, it's going to be very hard to bring about correction if there is division among the members. A person that you're divided from is less likely to be in a position where an admonishment will be received. They may not even feel compelled to correct whatever the sin issue is because there's already a wedge in between the two parties. So why go forward and make that wedge, make that wedge worse? Uh, further, they may not even be in agreement about the action being a sin or not. And so division can run deep like that. That's why the apostle appeals to them to be of the same mind and of the same judgment. They, they need to be at a place informed by special revelation, informed by the word of God as to what sin is and how to be able to respond to it. 
And unity is necessary for this. They need to be of the same mind and judgment. As an aside here, that, that, this is why creeds and confessions are valuable to us. Nick talked about that a little bit last week. And the reason I bring it up again now is simply because they promote unity. Unity around the essentials of the faith. That is why when someone is looking for a church to attend after they've moved or if they're going on vacation and they want to you know, visit a church on the Lord's Day while they're gone, which everyone should do that, I, I would recommend that as well. The first thing I do in looking for a suitable church is I look at the church's statement of faith or confession. You have to go to the doctrinal statement, the confession, to see what it is that they believe. And if you come across a church that has a confession or a doctrinal statement that is only bare bones, I would say, like five or six statements, short statements, lacking any scripture, uh, proof texts, that tells me right away all that I need to know. That doctrine isn't very important to them and that the unity of that church will most likely be based upon pragmatism and programs and not the Word of God itself. That's not the kind of church I would suggest that anyone should attend. Personally, I would commend to you all the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. It is a, it is a robust and detailed description of the Baptist beliefs. And I could get you a copy of it if you like. If you like to study it and learn about what they teach. Uh, conversely, you can find it online as well. As a matter of fact, if you go to our church website and you look under the resources tab, you can find a, a link that says Bible Study Helps. And there you can find a link to uh, the confession there as well as all the historic creeds and a little bit of an introduction on how it is that we should view them. Uh, in seminary, I was actually charged with the assignment of creating a personal statement of faith. And on the surface, it sounded like a fun exercise. I, really, I did actually enjoy it. I was playing around with it a lot. But after playing around with it and thinking about what I would turn in for assignment, I kind of just scrapped all my work and instead wrote a preamble to it to introduce it and just quoted the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. And the reason that I did that had nothing to do with laziness, after all. Uh, the reason that I did that is because Christianity isn't best described as a personal religion. Now, I know that in modern years, uh, this idea of a personal relationship with the Lord has been greatly advanced, and for good reason. You know, it highlights the individual's need for Jesus' substitutionary life and death to be applied to the individual. But at the same time, Christianity is not purely an individual faith. And more on that in just a moment. And so a historic confession of faith, like the 1689, for example, advances true Christian unity, not just with those living and worshiping together today, but also among believers spanning, uh, spanning years. The creeds go back even further, and both the historic creeds and confessions help us to see that we are part of a kingdom that Christ has been building since the fall. You see, contrary to what the world tells you, friends, everything isn't about us. We aren't to lead highly individualistic lives, but we are to live in unity with other Christians. And Pastor Nick had a lot of good comments to say about what that means last week, so I won't go into that too much. But we want to live in unity with others who share the same hope and promises from God. So Paul appeals to them, he appeals to us, that we are to be of the same mind and the same judgment, because that unity of mind and judgment is to be based upon what God's Word says, not our opinions not our fresh ideas, but the word of the Lord. Uh, the 16th century German theologian, uh, Rupertus Meldinius, came up with a phrase that was popular with the Puritans. You may have heard it before. 
It's in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In other words, there are some doctrines that, and matters that we cannot afford to be divided on as a church. And there are some doctrines and matters that we can disagree on and still have close fellowship. And we don't have time this morning to lay out all of the primary, the secondary, and the tertiary doctrines and matters, but we do see that the division in Corinth is not really the kind that is falling into the liberty category. The Apostle Paul is wanting them to be unified in these matters. These are essential areas. He's offering them correction for not being unified here. And so we'll see that they have division over identity, leading them to create these factions here in our text in chapter 1, these cliques. It's brought up again in chapter 3 as well, the same idea of factions. In chapter 8, they are divided on how to deal with food offered to idols. They're divided over how to observe the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. They are divided over matters of the resurrection in chapter 15. All very serious matters and doctrines. So Paul appeals to them to have unity for the reason of them being able to correct sin and grow in grace together. Secondly, the second reason, besides that first mentioned reason, is that Christ desires and designed his churches to be united. As I was saying a moment ago, Christianity isn't an individual faith. Yes, we must individually trust and personally uh, believe in Christ for salvation. When we are born again, when we are born from above, we must individually confess with our mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that Christ is victorious over our sin. I can't do that for you. Parents, you can't do that for your children. But when these things happen... Our individuality is eclipsed by a greater reality. Whereas before our salvation, we were separated from Christ and God and one another. In Christ, in our salvation, we are united to Christ, united to God, and united to one another. A radical and fundamental change occurs when the demands, the, which occurs that demands the apostle to correct the behavior of the saints here in Corinth. Principally, we are united to Christ himself. Uh, we could spend a, a whole series of sermons trying to exhaust all that the scripture says about our union with Christ and all the implications of our union with Christ. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this doctrine. But for the sake of time, I'll only mention a couple of things to show that this is part of the reason as to why the apostle is correcting their division first out of the list of sins. So John Calvin, in writing about the benefits of our union with Christ, says this. He says, I confess that we are deprived of this utterly incomparable good until Christ is made ours. Therefore, that joining of head and members, head being Christ, members being us, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union, by that he means to say that we just, we can't really describe our union with Christ. It's mystical. It's it's unknown to us, mysterious in a sense. He says, In short, that mystical union are accorded by us the highest degree of importance, so that Christ, having been made ours, makes us shares with him in the gifts with which he has been endowed. We do not, therefore, contemplate him outside of ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us, but because we put on Christ and are engrafted into his body, in short, because he, de he designs to make us one with him, 
For this reason, we glory that we have fellowship of righteousness with him. I would say amen to that. Uh, What Calvin is saying is that every good thing that we have in salvation, every good thing, every single one of them, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we have is all due to our union with Christ. All of it. It is all due to us being joined to Christ in faith. And we don't know exactly how that looks. It's a spiritual matter. That's why he calls it a a mystical union. But later on in this letter, the apostle is going to urge the people in Corinth to holiness. And he does it on the basis of them being united to Christ. He reminds them of their union with Christ in saying it. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. He says, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with them. And again, that's said to them in the context of them pursuing holiness. If you look down just a little bit to the end of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says there in verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So even there, you see some of the specific spiritual blessings, don't you? Righteousness, sanctification, redemption, wisdom. Our union with Christ is so radical that Paul tells the Galatian Christians that he has been, that when Christ was crucified, it is as if that it was him who has been crucified with Christ. And the life that he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. That's Galatians 2.20. It completely changes our life when we are united to Christ. It changes the way we live. And Paul must address the division in Corinth first because it speaks to their unity with Christ. Paul also needs to speak about the problem of division first because of how the gospel brings unity with God in general because we are also united to God. Yes, Christ is God, but because of our union with Christ who is God, we also have union with the other two persons of the Godhead. We are also united to God the Father and the, and the Holy Spirit. We may say it like this even, We are united to Yahweh. Yahweh doesn't simply mean the Father. Yahweh is the given name of God. It is Father, Son, and Spirit when we say Yahweh. And that gives us a hint as to the importance of this doctrine. Father, Son, and Spirit have existed eternally, forever in perfect unity, never having any division. There's one will among the divine Three pers- among the three divine persons, perfectly and always united. And we, in our salvation, are united to Yahweh. This is taught in part by the passage that we read for our call to worship this morning, that passage known as the High P- Priestly Prayer. There Jesus is praying for us and for all people who would ever come to believe in Him. And it's verse 21 there. I have it on the, on the slide for you in John 17. He says there that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, we're united with Yahweh. The Apostle Paul addresses the doctrine of being united to Yahweh in Ephesians as well. And speaking about the specific reconciliation that is had between Jew and Gentiles, he says this about the Gentiles closest to God and Christ before and after their salvation. Ephesians 2, 12 uh, through 13 reads, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. Paul is reminding the Gentiles that there was division between them and Yahweh, that they were not part of the old covenant with God, and so they were separated from Christ, certainly, but also from the physical and spiritual blessings that came from being in that specific covenant with God at that period of time. God revealed himself to Abraham. He made promises to Abraham, physical promises that would eventually be realized in the people of Israel. And if a Gentile in that time was to receive those blessings, they would essentially have to become Jewish. They'd have to proselytize into the, to the Hebrew faith. They would be subject to all of the requirements of that covenant. They would have to be circumcised. They would have to obey all of the commandments. Um, everything that was contained in that covenant, they would be held subjected to. You had to be located in the land of Israel to partake of the covenant blessings. But that all changed when the new covenant was ratified. And so now the elect Gentiles who were rightly considered far off at that previous time, far off from what? Far off from the covenants of promise and far off from God himself, they now have been brought near, brought near by the blood of Christ. No more division but unity with God. And then lastly, Paul needs to address their division because of how the gospel makes us united to one another. We are united to one another. Like I mentioned earlier, the apostle is going to address specific divisions throughout this letter to the Corinthians. In the passage for this morning, the division is pretty clear, isn't it? They've divided themselves into different camps. There are these factions that that exist in verse 13. They form these cliques and there's divisions. And this is directly against the design and the desire that Christ has for his church in the gospel. You don't need to turn there this morning, but in the 12th chapter to 1 Corinthians, this letter, um, it contains that famous passage that likens the church to a body. And the different people in that body are likened to different body parts. So you have, you know, someone's referred to as a head, the head or not the head, the head is Christ, apologies. There's, there's eyes, there's hands, there's feet, uh, there's a nose, and, and so on. And all of these parts work together as the people of God to honor Him, to worship Him, and to care for and support one another. But if there is a vision, that doesn't work. And we know that this as believers, and we know these believers in Corinth have divided themselves, essentially then, making themselves unable to to do the very things that they are intended to do in the gospel. The body is dismembered or is in danger of being dismembered here in Corinth at this time. Division in a congregation ruins a congregation's ability to truly care for one another. And that's Paul's closing remarks on that section as well. Uh, 12, 25 through 26 says this. He says that there may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. You see, division is going to leave them, it leaves us vulnerable, unable to give each other the kind of care and the support that we need. And we understand this to be true in marriage, don't we? You married folk know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, When you're getting along with your spouse, isn't life more enjoyable? In all ways, Unity makes life more better. It makes it more full. Even if you have to suffer, you're not suffering alone. And the same is true for us in our relationship in the church. Of course, we know that Christ is always with us as well, but we are, still, we are weak, and so he uses the blessing of others that have a, a, the same mind, the same judgment, to comfort us, to care for us. We know that from experience, and we know that from Scripture. Psalm 133 is a short psalm. 
but it captures this reality nonetheless. There it says, Behold, how good and pleasant is it when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The point of that psalm is to capture the preciousness, the sweetness of harmony and the oneness of like-mindedness that is enjoyed in the fellowship of God and believers. And I know from experience, and I'm sure you all do too, that the sweetest and the deepest moments of fellowship in my life are the hours when we are relishing together in some shared vision with people who have the same convictions about God and the world. And, and, And the deeper that agreement the deeper the joy and the deeper the power of those moments. Have you found that to be true? Unity goes a long way. So whereas the point of this letter to the saints in Corinth is to preserve the holiness that Christ's church is to have, the Apostle Paul deals first with this matter of division because correcting the sin is going to be essential for having a healthy church environment where the other sins can be rightly addressed and also because Christ has designed and desires his church to be united. So the burden of this message this morning concerns the goal of Christian unity and its relationship then to the cross. And what I want to do is, number one, describe the nature of the disunity that Paul is dealing with here, and then two, examine how he undermines the basis of that disunity and attempts to build a foundation for unity. So first, identifying the the nature of the disunity. What is the nature of the disunity that Paul faces? We talked about it briefly already. It's described in verse 11 through 12. Let's look at that once again. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So evidently, What is happening in the church in Corinth is that the people were beginning to form factions behind their preferred teacher, behind their favorite teacher. And we're introduced to the source of Paul's information about the saints in Corinth at this point. If you remember, Paul is actually in Ephesus when he's writing this letter. And that's not actually close to Corinth at all. It's about, um, in in their time, it would be probably about a week's travel. And then you either have to go around or take a, a ship across the Aegean Sea. It's unclear as if Chloe actually lived in Ephesus, though, or if she lived in, in Corinth and was part of the church there, but apparently she was wealthy, or, and she, had, um, she was either in charge of merchants or her family would travel in between these two important cities. And so a trustworthy report is brought to Paul about the church in Corinth from Chloe's people, a, a report that notes that they were quarreling and had formed factions. And what they were doing, ultimately, in this matter and in the other sins Paul will eventually address, is that they're they're living like the world at this point. They were living like Gentiles rather than living like the spiritual Israel that they had professed to be. They were operating out of the wisdom of the world and creating these factions. That's the type of thing that the world does. That's not the type of thing that the church should be doing. We don't know the exact reasons as to why or how these factions were formed, but we can make some observations that are important that might help us understand something behind them. The Apostle Paul, of course, is the one who first planted this church. His work of evangelism and discipleship and apologetics were crucial in the formation of the church in Corinth. And so those people that said, I follow Paul, 
they liked him, obviously. Maybe they were part of the church that knew him personally. Perhaps the elders of the church were in this group. I, I find it interesting, actually, that there is no mention of the elders, the leadership of the church of Corinth with all these problems. So you would think that that would be addressed, but that wasn't the Holy Spirit's will at this, at this moment. Or perhaps it's the Gentiles of the church that follow Paul. By his own admission, he would say that he was the apostle to the Gentiles. In Ephesians 3, he says that about himself and other places as well. In Acts 9, the Lord told Paul that he would be used to carry the Lord's name to the Gentiles. And if that's the case, if the I follow Paul group is made up of Gentiles, or perhaps some other reason, but if, it's, if the primary reason is that they're made up of Gentiles, then that perhaps sheds, sheds some light as to why there is an I, I follow Cephas group. Cephas is, is Peter. Uh, and these people are saying that they follow Peter, and perhaps then it was the Jewish believers in the congregation who are saying that they follow Peter. Charles Hodge writes, As Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles and Peter of the Jews, it is probable that the converts from among the Gentiles claim Paul as their leader, and the Jew Jewish converts appeal to the authority of Peter. Nevertheless, friends, to our knowledge, uh, Peter never actually visited the church, so the reason as to why a faction would form around him is, is ultimately speculation. Then also we have a group that followed Apollos. Hopefully that's a familiar name because we don't have time to get into all the details concerning him in the word. Uh, we learned in Acts 18 and 19 that Apollos was with Paul in Corinth and the scriptures speak of him highly and the ministry work that he did as well. He is described as eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, fervent in the spirit and instructed in the way of the Lord. And apparently some people in Corinth are favoring him over the others. And then... You have the last group, which is kind of hard to put our, our finger on. They're the ones that follow Christ. Uh, isn't that what we're all supposed to be doing? Isn't that everyone's goal in the first place? It's clear, though, that they didn't mean it in that sense because the structure of the sentence shows that they are just as guilty as the rest of the parties for causing division. Perhaps it was an air of superiority that they had about themselves, it's as if they're saying, you know, you guys can follow those other dudes, but we're going we're gonna to follow Christ. Look how spiritual and holy we are. We are the arrived ones. It's that, it's that holier-than-thou mentality. It's kind of like those people who reject all the creeds and confessions, and then they say, well, I don't have a creed. My creed is Christ. And they say it all smug and proud whenever they do that. But that itself is a creed, isn't it? I have no creed but Christ. And it's a horrible one at that. And what Christ do you have? Is it the biblical Christ, the true Christ? Is it the Christ that saints for generations have confessed and worshipped? We don't know because of your horrible creed. You know, be specific. One thing that we should note about these factions, though, is that they didn't develop over doctrine, over specific teachings. Later on in this letter, Paul's going to commend Apollos to the saints in Corinth. All these factions were centered around teachers who taught the same thing, the same gospel. And we would be right to think that Paul, Apollos, and Peter, that all of them rejected these factions and wanted them to be done away with. Certainly, the Apostle Paul does, right? That's what he's doing here in our text. Now, if in fact they did teach different things, if they all had a, excuse me, a different gospel, then division would not be a bad thing. It would be necessary. We never have unity without truth. It's not just unity for unity's sake. 
I trust that we all remember Paul's admonishment to the Galatians, right? That if anyone there taught another gospel, let them be anathemized. Anathemized means to be, to be cut off from the possibility of salvation. The gospel is not something to be played with or handled lightly. That's why James says, let not many of you be teachers in James 4.1. This is why the Apostle Paul says in the 11th chapter of this letter, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So division is not always bad, but it's even necessary when essential truths are being compromised, when heresy is being taught. It makes it so that discern, so division and these uh, heresies that exist among people make it so that the discerning will know who really loves Christ. But that's not the case with these four factions mentioned here. These factions aren't over different teaching or a different gospel. They it seems to be that they have isolated particular qualifications or strengths of their favorite teacher and then began to brag about them. They elevated these characteristics of a particular teacher above the others, and they derived some sense of personal superiority from claiming this particular teacher as their own. They did it for themselves, in other words. Uh, we'll see the evidence for that in just a moment. But first ponder how... how relevant and how frequent this is today. Let me just mention two ways that this kind of disunity, this kind of tribalism or factionism plagues the churches still today. Number one, uh, disunity, it's, it's disunity caused by self-esteem and ego boosting. There is a great danger of taking pride in knowing and being associated with important people. Uh, most of us, you know, we feel like nobodies in a world where the media is constantly holding up the desirability of the well-known. Social media has only made this worse even. So the way millions of people try to satisfy their this desire is to line up behind someone who they feel is somebody. Teenagers may put posters of him or her on their wall. Uh, we may read all of their books. We may listen to their podcasts. We may watch their films. We may go to their churches, take their classes, get on their mailing lists, get so familiar with their teaching and their ways of doing things that we begin to idealize them and even idolize them. This happens in churches today, and people do it because it boosts their self-esteem. It boosts their ego to say that this guy is my guy, and I've met so-and-so. And because this popular person is identified with me, then I am better too. Now, the effect of esteeming oneself and, and this sort of an ego trip is that anyone who disagrees with you, anyone who's not on that same bandwagon, is generally looked down upon, and the result is the emergence of factions and schisms and splits. And so then we quarrel because we have these differences. Chloe's people reported that was the case in Corinth. But for them and for us, when we are guilty of this sin, it's because our desires are misplaced. Rather than being satisfied in Christ, we need some earthly cohort to feel comfort and to feel of value. James 4, 1 through 3 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It goes down to our hearts, doesn't it? Our sin flows from there. It's the seat of our depravity. 
our passions are out of line. We want the esteem of others, so we covet what others think of of some special person because at the end of the day, we are selfish and we have independent desires and quarreling and factions arise. Friends, this this will kill a church. This will destroy a church. That is why Paul is addressing this right away. We can't ever let this happen. May God be gracious to us. The the second way that this kind of tribalism or factionism plagues the church is by disunity caused by an anti-authoritarian cynicism. (laughs) So the other way this sort of factionism emerges There's a kind of esteem and ego ego boost through someone else's importance that leads to division, but there's also an opposite reaction that has the very same root of pride. There are those who are very defensive and reactionary about any kind of influence coming from any sort of a Christian leader. So if you learn something helpful from a book or from a sermon or from a lecture or a video, and you try to tell this, this kind of person about it, they'll immediately impute you to some kind of hero worship or herd mentality. And then they say that they, say that it, that they feel the need to make it very clear that they don't believe everything that teacher says because they are more critical and more independent and cautious than you are. You know, they, they have that mentality that all they need is the Bible. They don't need anything else. But obviously that's not true for anyone because everyone listens to preaching as a Christian. So... That sort of an attitude is destructive of unity as well. That's the kind of disunity that is characterized by the I follow Christ group in our, in our text. And so there are these two forms of pride in the church. And when it comes to Christian leadership, one wants to ride the coattail of a leader to a kind of self-esteem boost. And the other is a kind of anti-authoritarian, suspicious, skeptical, often cynical attitude that wants to make it clear to everybody that they're not part of that tribe. Both will destroy the unity of the church. So the nature of the disunity at Corinth is basically a kind of boasting or pride that expresses itself in playing off one teacher against another for the purpose of their own ego, their own idea of identity. Okay, the nature of the disunity at Corinth is basically a kind of boasting or pride that expresses itself in playing off one teacher against another for the purpose of their own identity, excuse me, for the purpose of their own ego, their own idea of identity. Now, the real proof of this comes when we start to examine how Paul undermines the basis for this disunity and gives us the instruction to correct it. So let's turn to our second question. second question that we want to answer today is, how does Paul undermine the basis of that disunity and attempt to build a foundation for unity? He urges on the Corinthians five truths. And we can state them both negatively and positively. Paul believes in the power of truth to change people, just like Jesus did, just like we should. Uh, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. So let's look briefly at each of these truths and let them sink into our hearts and pray that they change us as well. The first point is Christ is not divided. He's one. Verse 13, Paul proclaims, is Christ divided? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no. Now, why is this relevant to the issue of quarreling and factions behind different leaders? Well, two reasons. One is that we're the body of Christ. Christ's body is not dismembered. He's the head. We are attached to him. We are the body. It's whole. If we try to puff up ourselves over the other members of the body, it would be a contradiction of Christ. The body is one. Look at what Paul writes to the saints in Ephesus. 
chapter 4, 1 through 6. It says, Therefore, a, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, Christ is not divided. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. The other reason it's relevant to say that Christ is not divided is that when a believer has Christ, he has all of Christ. He has the whole Christ. No one needs to feel inferior or superior if Christ is really your great treasure, if he is your identity. Christ is not divided. If you have him, you have all of him. And to have all of Christ is to have everything that you need to be happy forever. The second point is, is closely related to this first point. And it's, it's in the letter, but it's not actually in the text that we have for this, this morning. Believers possess all things because Christ owns all things. This is turn over to chapter 3. This is 21 to 23. Again, remember earlier I said that Paul deals with the idea of factions and division over them in chapter 3. Verse 21 to 23 says this, So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Now you can see clearly here that Paul has never lost his concern in these three chapters with the boasting that was behind the divisions. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. Now he brings out the foolishness of this boasting by saying, why do you puff yourself up as though you had some special claim on the teacher when actually, when the reality is in Christ, they are all yours, along with the whole world, because Christ owns all and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. In other words, in trying to claim one teacher for yourself, you're surrendering your claim over the entire universe. You're acting like people who do not know what the inheritance of the Christian is. Why should a man who owns the whole world boast that he has one house that is bigger than another? That's essentially what these guys are doing here. So the second truth that undermines the base of disunity is the truth that God has made all things the inheritance of his children, and they don't need to secure any little piece of turf with some sort of protective boasting. Thirdly, Paul was, was not crucified for you. Christ was. Back to our text. This is verse 13. This is when he says Paul um, was not crucified, crucified you, he, he's asking it rhetorically. When he says, was Paul crucified? Of course not. Christ was crucified for you. Paul is doing something tactful here, though. He's zeroing in on the splinter group that made him their hero. Had he attacked the Apollos or the Peter party first, he would have played right into the hands of the Paul group. So he tries to, to right off the bat, to destroy himself as a ground for boasting. I was not crucified for you. Christ was, and Christ alone. Now, this truth should have two effects on us, church. One is that when it comes to boasting about someone, let it be the Lord and not a mere man. Verse 31 in this chapter says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Compared to what Christ has done in dying for us, the distinctiveness of the different teachers is, is absolutely meaningless. To elevate a human teacher to the point where the allegiance shatters 
the bond of unity in the body of Christ means that we have lost sight of the infinite and the overwhelming worth of a crucified Savior. And the other effect is that this truth should have on us is to remind us that our sin is so great that we need to be saved by nothing less than that horrid execution of the Son of God and so do even these teachers that we might lift up. To boast in man, to, to puff him up and to ride his coattails means that we have forgotten the dreadful condition that we are all in without a crucified Savior. The, the cross breaks the back of all boasting. And so the cross undermines the deepest basis of disunity and lays a foundation for unity. We are all wicked rebel sinners under the cross, saved by grace alone and faith alone through, by Christ alone. Our focus then needs to be on the cross. The fourth point, you were baptized into Christ's name. Paul tries to undermine the disunity of believers by saying, you were not baptized into my name. Or he says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the answer is, is no, of course not. You were baptized into the name of Christ. Evidently, one of the boasts at the Paul party was that they had been among the first converts who had actually come to Christ under Paul's preaching. And Paul reminds them that he baptized only Crispus and Gaius in the household of Stephanus and, and maybe a few others. It's actually kind of comical the way he says it. Maybe there are some others that I don't know about. Uh, but he, he says that in verse 14. He says that he's glad that he didn't baptize anymore. In other words, church, whatever elder baptizes you, don't brag about that. It's not about him. The issue is who you were baptized into. And Paul's not forgetting at this point the Great Commission that tells us to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But he's wanting to draw their attention to who it should be at the, in, for the sake of this division. It should be on Christ. Romans 6.3 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? In other words, did you identify with Christ at that moment of your salvation or did you identify with a preacher? You contradict the meaning of your baptism when you brag about the man that put you under the water. He's nothing compared to Christ. And not only that, but the very meaning of baptism was death to self and life to God. What a travesty then to make baptism a means of asserting the, that old self-pride and boasting. And then the last way that he tries to undermine the gospel is by pointing out that true gospel teachers do not rely on eloquence, but rely on the message of the cross. They rely on the gospel. This is the meaning of verse 17, where he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied with its, of its power. And so it would seem here, actually, at the first, for the first time, Paul's taking aim at the Apollos party. In Acts 18.24, we read about Apollos, and it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Alexandria was a wealthy city, an important city. It says he came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. So without too much speculation, we can conclude that the two main parties in Corinth were the Paul party and the Apollos party. At the beginning of chapter 3, when he mentions these factions again, he only mentions the two of them. The Paul party was saying that he was their man. He was there first. He founded the church, and then he did some amazing signs. The Apollos party was saying that their man was more eloquent, and he had been building with wonderful wisdom. So Paul does something surprising, and he responds in verse 17 by saying that eloquence can actually nullify the cross. Not that Apollos was doing that. Not that he even intended this, 
But these Greek Gentiles loved that sort of thing, especially before coming to Christ. And so they got caught up in his style and his ability, and they were impressed with him and not the Christ of his preaching. And there's a danger for us to be aware of this as well. Some preachers are simply going to say the same thing as other faithful preachers, but they'll do it in what you perceive to be a better way, a more eloquent way, a more charismatic way. Truly, preachers, they do grow in their ability to preach. We grow in our craft. We get better after time, after more practice. But for we who listen to preachers, we need to be careful to not idolize and idealize a person for the way that they preach. Our focus needs to be on the one who is preaching of the gospel exalts on Christ, not the way that it's delivered. Paul is aware of this in his own ministry, probably because of the way he went into the ministry. He, he came to the ministry, to this apostolic call, later than the rest of the apostles. They were already established and known by the people. And in light of the reality that he was a huge persecutor of the church before that. So he did what he felt was necessary to make sure that the focus would not be on him and what he did, but on the cross of Christ. That's where the power is. 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where the power is. It's not innate to us who preach. It's in the substance of our message, and the message must always be Christ, who he is what he has done. The preacher's job is not to make ourselves known. It is to make Christ known. We can't save you. We weren't crucified for you. You weren't baptized into the name of your pastors. The focus is, is not on us. If we're going to avoid factions, we need to always keep the focus on Christ and Christ and his cross. It is Christ who saves you. It is him who lived a righteous life obedient to the law of God at every step. It is him who is crucified for you. You need him to be your substitute on the cross. I need him for that. Our sin can be dealt with us by us respectively in eternal punishment or it was dealt on Christ on the cross. It is Christ who is risen for you, risen for your justification, risen and promising to return again that we too will rise with him when he comes again. It is Christ who, who you were baptized into, the focus needs to be on Christ, church, on Christ and his cross. That is how we, by grace, might avoid these foolish and fatal factions. It is only by that, by keeping our focus on Christ and his cross. So let's pray together, and we'll, then we'll come together to observe communion after that. Father in heaven, we thank you for this correction that you offer us here in this letter to the saints in Corinth. Forgive us for being guilty of this in our own ways, at our own times. Forgive us for identifying more with a teacher so over our identification with you. We, we do appreciate the, the teachers that you give us, Lord, but help us to remember that they are men with feet of clay. They are men who are prone to fall. We thank you for those teachers who desire to take the light off themselves and to keep it on you. May that be the way that we view the teaching of your word. Lord, help us to make much of you. May we have that same mindset of the Apostle Paul, which declared that he had determined to know nothing among others but Christ and him crucified. We thank you for the cross work that you have done for us, Christ. Be exalted. Let us boast in you. 
Let us remember your gospel always and give you the praise that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.